You're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. Diabetic dyslipidemia, what are its features and causes, and more importantly, what can be done to manage it? Welcome to Lipid Luminations. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. Ronald Goldberg, Professor of Medicine, Biochemistry, and Molecular Biology in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Goldberg also serves as Associate Director of Medical Affairs of the Diabetes Research Institute and Director of the Lipid Disorders Unit. Dr. Goldberg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and it's good to be with you, Larry. Can you tell me a little bit about why it's so important to uh, identify and manage diabetic dyslipidemia? The major cause of morbidity and mortality in diabetes is cardiovascular disease. Uh, 60 to 70% of people eventually succumbing to it. And clearly, therefore, risk factors for cardiovascular disease are of paramount importance. Dyslipidemia is a key abnormality contributing to cardiovascular disease. So focusing on early identification and effective management of diabetic dyslipidemia is likely to be one of our major approaches to preventing and reducing the effects of cardiovascular disease. Can you talk a little bit about what the actual features are in a diabetic's dyslipidemia versus just a garden variety? Well, the classic features are elevation of triglyceride, generally only mild, but occasionally can be severe, a reduction in HDL of 10 to 20 percent, usually worse in women than men, and an increase in the number of small, dense LDL particles, which are not measured as part of the standard profile, but which tend to prevent the LDL cholesterol going very high because small particles have less cholesterol in them. So high cholesterol is not a feature of diabetic dyslipidemia. So really, the practitioner can be fooled into thinking they have a normal LDL and don't need to be on statin therapy. That's absolutely correct. And so is it safe to say that if you are a diabetic, you need to be on a statin? It seems that the great majority of people with diabetes should be on statin therapy. There's been some discussion about whether the risk of young people or people with short-duration diabetes... Uh, people without other concomitant comorbidities, whether their risk is as high and whether uh, you should begin statin therapy immediately, there is some debate about that. But in principle, most patients with diabetes, certainly with type 2 diabetes and many with type 1 diabetes, should be on statin therapy. Let's say for the average practitioner out there who who does not do advanced lipid testing and has no idea about small-dense LDL, would you recommend they do a lipid panel and, and throw on an ApoB as kind of a poor man's uh, particle number? Well, that has been raised and discussed, and it's controversial. I think the National Cholesterol Education Program panel actually believes that the non-HDL cholesterol, which is the total minus the HDL cholesterol, which doesn't cost a thing and doesn't require anything more than the standard lipid profile, is as good a predictor or almost as good a predictor as ApoB, doesn't involve any extra expense and doesn't involve the whole educational process that going toward an ApoB approach would take. But there are those who contend that ApoB is a better overall risk predictor what we can say for sure is both non-HDL cholesterol and ApoB are better predictors of cardiovascular disease than LDL cholesterol. So the NCEP approach is LDL first, 
get it to goal, and then non-HDL second. Following up on that, are you a size lipidologist or a particle number lipidologist? I'm not sure. I'm either. I'm yet to be convinced that information derived from measuring LDL size or LDL particle number is going to yield therapeutic benefit. It may do so, but to this point, the information we have in the literature has focused on indicating that these measurements may have may be better predictors of risk, but don't yet tell us whether acting upon them in a way beyond what is recommended for the standard lipid profile is actually going to reduce cardiovascular disease. Let's talk a little bit about what the average doc can do when he has his lipid panel and the lipid panel comes back and does not calculate the non-HDL. It's a simple subtraction device and a number of organizations, including the NLA actually, is trying to push labs to just simply take the HDL cholesterol. You simply subtract it from the total cholesterol the difference is the non-HDL cholesterol. It's, it's a no-brainer. It's very easy to do. And the key point from NCEP is that the target for treatment should be no more than 30 points above whatever the LDL target should be. There was an article recently in JAMA talking about non-fasting triglycerides. Did you have a chance to look at that? I did look at it briefly, yes. So what do you think? Is that going to be the new uh, paradigm that we're not going to be doing fasting lipids and everyone and their brother is going to be on therapy because everyone's going to have high triglycerides? I think it's interesting. This idea has been around for a while. I'm not yet totally convinced that these data are clear indications of the superiority of non-fasting triglycerides, but certainly it's worth exploring further because it is no question that having to get people in fasting does certainly make it harder to do things like mass screening and even in the regular follow-up of patients that are in treatment. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. I'm talking today with Dr. Ronald Goldberg, Associate Director of Medical Affairs of the Diabetes Research Institute. Dr. Goldberg, how does antihyperglycemic treatment affect lipid and lipoprotein abnormalities in diabetes? To begin with, poorly controlled diabetic subjects typically have an aggravation of their dyslipidemia, particularly elevations in the triglyceride level, worsening in the low HDL, and even occasionally elevated LDL. So first and foremost, it is crucial for many other reasons, of course, as well, to try to achieve glycemic targets as you manage the dyslipidemia. Then beyond just improvements of glycemic control, there are some individual differences in the antihyperglycemic agents. To this point, the group that has the greatest effect on the lipid profile are the thiazolidine dions, which increase HDL. Uh, they do increase LDL modestly, and it's thought that much of that may be because they increase the size of the LDL. So quite how to interpret that particular change is unclear. Pioglitazone, but not rosiglitazone, decreases triglycerides modestly, and pioglitazone tends to increase HDL more than rosiglitazone. So those are fairly significant abnormalities, and some have even wondered whether the HDL raising effect of the TZDs might be viewed as a target for therapy. But with all the recent news about questions of cardiovascular disease, that's become unclear. It's a bad time to be a TZD. Right. Metformin has a very modest effect on lowering triglycerides. Insulin has been, in some studies, suggested to increase HDL somewhat. 
and of course is probably the most effective drug in getting glucose levels to normal, which means reversing the glycemic or the hyperglycemic effects on the lipid profile. In your practice, are you ever able to get your diabetics' triglycerides under control by just working on their diet and exercise? It depends where they are to start with. At least 60, 70 or so percent we're going to have triglyceride levels over 150. And depending upon the size of the abnormality, so you may or may not need to progress to pharmacotherapy. I mean, if you can get 5 to 10 pounds weight reduction, modest in other words, in your patient, you can quite often significantly lower triglyceride levels. They tend to respond better among the lipid profile components to weight reduction than any other. Well, that's good to know. So we can actually tell the patients that it really will have an impact. Absolutely. Let's say we have a uh, diabetic with just an isolated low HDL and normal LDL, normal triglycerides. I know they're not that common, but does this patient, A, need to go on a statin and B, would we want to pick a statin that's going to raise the HDL and not lower it anymore? Well, first, let me just say that, of course, diabetes is a common condition, and genetic causes of lipoprotein abnormalities are, are quite common, so they may clearly coexist. Typically, when the HDL is low in diabetes, the triglyceride is somewhat elevated. So in a case where the HDL is isolated low, I'm thinking there are two conditions. Be that as it may, for cardiovascular disease, the risk has got to be compounded, we would predict. And therefore, that's an individual who has diabetes and at least one risk factor in addition, so I'm going to put that patient on a statin. With regard to the HDL raising effects on statins, they're modest. There is, There does seem to be some heterogeneity between different statins with a claim being made that rosuvastatin has the greatest HDL raising and uh, atorvastatin the lower, particularly at the higher doses. But we are talking differences between something like 5 to 12%. It's not very much. So in relation to HDL raising, if I'm going to use a drug, I would be thinking more along the lines of using niacin. All right. So niacin would be your go-to drug next? Probably my second drug after the statin, yes. And if they are unable to tolerate niacin, who's next? Is it fibrate or fish oil? Fish oil has very little effect on HDL. Fibrates have more effects on HDL, not as great as niacin. And of course, once you start adding a fibrate to a statin, you complicate therapy because there are these drug interactions. So I think the decision to add a fibrate to a statin has to be taken on an individualized basis, looking at the entire clinical picture in that patient. Do they have renal disease? Do they have multiple organ problems? Are they on other drugs that might aggravate that interaction? These kinds of things. But yeah, it's definitely a consideration. How has the field trial changed your prescribing habits? Well, it was a terrible disappointment. And the problem always with these negative studies is whether or not it's truly negative, that is to say the drug doesn't work, or whether it turned out to be a design which was unable to really test the efficacy of the drug. And there have been a number of reasons to suspect that the latter was operating. That is to say there was more statin use in the control group, and the type of patient selected for the field study is not the classical patient that responds with benefit to fibrates. So, but on the other hand, it was a negative study. And so 
unlike the statins where you had one robust result after the other, I think you're left feeling a little less certain about the fibrates. I wouldn't say that they don't have a place, but I think that niacin is tending, if tolerable, to become a better option because wherever it has been used, and it's not many studies that have looked at it, the benefits have tended to be positive. Right, and quite remarkable at times, even in the HATS trial. I mean, most of them even will show both regression and decrease in events. But we really need a good, long, big outcomes-based trial, and those are now underway, two separate long-term trials to look at that. Back to statin therapy in the diabetic. Are you trying to get them all to 70 or below if they're diabetic? Increasingly, I think. Certainly less than 100 would be my first goal. And then I would look at the clinical picture and decide where are they likely to be in terms of absolute risk. And the higher I designate the absolute risk, the more likely I'm going to want to get them lower. So certainly any patient with cardiovascular disease would be targeted for 70. Well, on that note, Dr. Goldberg, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals.